This is Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Black History Month is um, a commemoration, vocab word, for black activists, another vocab word, who took we celebrate black people that helped us change history. It reminds us to be strong, even in politics. Oy. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of relief. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, you should always celebrate it because you know the, the, the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. Black History Month 2021, and we're at Our Common Ground to celebrate. Welcome to our Our Common Ground Black History Special, the history of black political movements in America. This is a four-week lecture series on the history and interchange of black political movement and progress each Thursday, 8 p.m., with Dr. James L. Taylor. Sit back, nerd, and liberate. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us in session four of a four-part lecture series, The History of Black Political Movements in America. We are honored to have had the opportunity to learn from the excellence of history and political science under the tutelage of a scholar who loves and sees black people, one who can tell our story with an eye on the golden ribbon that weaves through it. Dr. James L. Taylor, Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. And now, Our Common Ground is honored to present Dr. Professor James L. Taylor. Welcome back, everyone, and all praise to Janice Graham and uh, Our Common Ground uh, and the Our Common Ground audience. Um, just for your attention to the issues we've been raising over the last several weeks, uh, trying to uh, tease out of our own political and social history and experience, our spiritual history, um, something that uh, we can bring forward into the current crises um, and apply uh, in our everyday lives, in our thinking, in our mental sort of um, need for you know peace and um, and sort of you know being uh, you know present 
and 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 just sort of not taking on all of the negativity of these of these times. I think you have to know the history of your ancestors and appreciate that black people have been through this a lot. We've been through these moments where there's a big racial outpouring. Um, what we saw in Washington, D.C. on January 6th has happened many times to black people throughout the 19th and 20th century, but at the local level in places like Colfax, um, Louisiana, um, and places like Rosewood, Florida, um, places like Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, um, places like Atlanta, Georgia in 1906. Um, the white riot was a thing that when um, the sister um, who recently made the statement, um, Tamika Ma- Mallory, when she was talking about the George Floyd uprisings and said to the audience, the white audience, she said, you white people, we learned uh, violence from you. We learned it from you, and people were perplexed. But what she was saying was a history lesson. She was explaining that the history of riots were white only on us and on Native Americans. Um, the white riot was a riots were a white thing. They invented the riot. The mob, the pogrom, P O G R O M, the pogroms. Those are all European, uh, you know, developments. Specifically, you know, from the southern whites. And and so that reaction of that violence, um, you know, is is something that you know we've been subjected to again and again. We've seen black. We saw under in the 19th and 20th century, like in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898, where the Republicans and blacks um, who were Republicans at that time under Lincoln, when they would have an electoral victory uh, and were supposed to take on the new administration. The Democrats of the South simply grabbed their guns and, and, and ropes and, and said they weren't going to do it, and they didn't. In many instances, black Republican elected officials won against white Democrats in the South during Reconstruction, and the reaction was violence, mob violence, the taking over of public buildings to prevent um, uh, the, the new administrations from taking office. We saw this in Wisconsin we saw this in North Carolina in 2016 and 2017, you know, 2018. This, this, you know, you know, we're trying to blame everything on Trump on January 6th, and he deserves 99% of the, the, the you know, the, the attribution. But let's be clear that we've seen this in recently in our own time, but because so much goes on, we already have forgotten about it. But it's happened in Wisconsin and North Carolina, where Republicans either try to uh, obstruct the new Democrat governor from having any kind of executive power or to prevent them from taking office entirely. Um, and, they're, you know, and the courts of North Carolina have punished the Republicans, and, 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 and in some of their rulings found that the Republican Party's practices were overtly um, attempts to prevent demo- democratic um, uh, transference of power. Uh, and then we saw, of course, in Michigan, uh, when they went after Governor Whitmer, um, that they test-ran what they did in, in, um, in January. But what we need to understand is that what we saw in January, your great-grandmother saw in Alabama. Your great-grandmother saw in Wilmington, North Carolina. Your great-grandfather saw in Atlanta. This was the norm. The norm was whenever, especially during Reconstruction, but after, too, African-Americans or black people and the party that they were, because um, blacks had to create their own political party within the Republican Party. Because after abolition, 
in the 1860s, the Republican Party has nothing else to do with black America for the rest of its history. Black people stay with the party because of this deep emotional attachment to Abraham Lincoln as this Christ-type figure in American political history. But, um, you know, but, but going forward, blacks had to create their own party within the Republican Party called the Black and Tan Republicans. The Black and Tan Republicans were a re- black party within the racist Republican Party that became more interested in pro-business, um, you know, issues and interests than in, you know, what seemed to be their humanitarian concern at the outset when they were created as a party in 1856. Since 1856, we've only had a two-party system. And we had uh, only two choices. That's why I think anytime someone is criticizing black people for their party alignment is an ignorant person. I think when Candace Owens and, and Kanye West get on national TV and start talking about black people being on the plantation of the Democrats, it's because they are really ignorant of this history. They have no idea who the black and tan Republicans are. They have no idea that of all groups in America, black people were the only ones that were smart enough to create a party within a party. The Irish weren't smart enough. The Poles weren't smart enough. The Jews weren't smart enough. Uh, um, the, you know, other, other white ethnics that came to America in the 1880s and 1890s, they weren't smart enough. Black people at that very time that these immigrants were coming to America had already created a black party within the Republican Party called the Black and Tan Republicans. This is all in the research of a, a now, unfortunately, gone a, a beloved political scientist um, named Haynes Walton Jr. He was at Savannah State for many years, and then he uh, was at Michigan, along with Harold Cruz. Uh, at Cruz, um, he was at Michigan. But Haynes Walton, uh, Haynes Walton, um, you can probably get it on Amazon or, 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 you know, or in a local library, where he's looked at black political parties, and he he, he demonstrated how black Americans created about 25 different political parties throughout the 19th and 20th century, all the way up to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. It was common for us to try to find our own party strategy within the two-party system, and we did things like be a party within the party. We also broke from our party over a 30-year period of time between FDR and LBJ, between the New Deal and the Great Society. That's a whole generational cycle. And uh, LBJ worked as an undersecretary in the New Deal and saw himself as the second coming of FDR. He wanted to be at LBJ, the next FDR, and that's why you have the Great Society and War on Poverty programs. Those were massive, and they were actually far more pro-black than the New Deal's policies were because the New Deal was administered by the racist South in, in where we were, uh, wherever we still were. And the, the, the Jim Crow state administered the New Deal, and the racist Republicans, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, at that time, the racist Democrats at that time, they literally negotiated with, um, uh, uh, with um, FDR to take out areas where black people dominated economically to try to impoverish us. And they were, it worked effectively. They were able to get agriculture as an unprotected area or an uncovered area under the New Deal. And so black people who dominated, because from our slave ancestry, there were no better farmers in the world than us. No one knew the land, the, the soil, the, the, the trees, the, the seasons, the, the air, the water. You know, no one knew that better. No one knew farming better than black men, black men and women from the South. 
and and they dominated in terms of real intelligence in agriculture. But if you look, study the New Deal, you'll see that the Southern delegation of the of the then Democratic Party negotiated with um, FDR, the Democrat, to prevent black people from benefiting from the New Deal. So the New Deal was less pro-black than the, than the war on poverty. The war on poverty is directly a response to King's move, you know, King's, um, uh, in, in, you know, imploring, and also to, um, you know, to the, the, the circumstances of poor whites in Appalachia and, and Puerto Ricans and blacks and Native Americans in the reses. It was a general attempt to address poverty in the same way the New Deal tried to recover the country from poverty. And so the country was doing well in the 60s financially. It was not a, a poor time when black people are protesting and marching in the 60s, at least not for the middle class. The middle class is thriving off of the World War II economy you know, for 15, 20 years now. So it's thriving. And, in fact, it's because the country was so rich at that time that LBJ declared a war on what? Poverty. So, in fact, LBJ, according to a book called Nixonland, uh, Richard Nixonland, uh, by a a scholar named Pearlstein, uh, LBJ had about 80% approval rating amongst Republicans. Uh, And so it was called an era of liberal consensus. And that's where the, the New Deal and great society were different, you know, ends of the same phenomena, but the latter was, was definitely more uh, focused on the African-American and poor white and those other groups I mentioned, you know, economic conditions. And that's why it's always repudiated. That's why the Republicans always badmouth the New Deal. I mean, I'm sorry, the great society. They always badmouth the New Deal because for them, socialism is a code word for black politics or, or black equality. And that's what I think people who, you know, uh, don't understand the code. Uh, in my class this week, my student and I listened to Lee Atwater say on a tape and a clip that you can watch on YouTube, Lee Atwater, who uh, was Ronald Reagan's um, main, um, uh, you know, ca- campaign advisor, Lee Atwater, who played the blues with people like Fats Domino, Lee, Lee Atwater, the racist, played the blues with black men. I have the tape here. I know it sounds odd, but look it up. Lee Atwater, the racist, who who was the the, the mentor the mentor of of Roger Ailes, the brain of Fox. This white man uh, says on on a YouTube clip that in this he said in 1940 uh, I think he says 1947 you could say n n n n n. He used the word outright. He said now don't quote me on this, but he uses the outright word. He doesn't try to use the n word. He says the actual word, the n word, full word. And he says n n n. You could say that in 47. I think he says he says but uh, 1954 he says but he says in 1968 you couldn't say that anymore. He says in 1968 you had to say busing, you had to say taxes, you had to say um, budget. Um, you had to say socialism. And these are the codes for black. In American politics, everything comes back to race. Policy, the, the fight about budgets, the fight about austerity, the fights about um, welfare, the fights about taxes and tax policies for public education, um, uh, pensions and retirement program plans. Many white people who are working class because of racism give away their own pension and retirement plans and, and things of that sort that are for, you know, for, in terms of public life and, and, and rewards from, you know, working. In the name of racism, they're willing to sacrifice their own benefits uh, if, it, if, if it is sold to them that black people will benefit it. Just think about how poor white people are in Mississippi. 
just think about Mississippi. Mississippi's whites are probably the poorest whites in the country outside of West Virginia. And let's think about West Virginia. West Virginia's whites are, the, are probably poor, poorer than most black people. But these white people are proud, red, red hat-wearing, Confederate flag you know, they, they take great pride in, in being white, even living in squalor. Because in their minds, they possess a more valuable property. That's why I don't waste my language and call white, uh, what white people have privilege. You'll never hear me using some white made-up word like that. That's some, that came from some white woman, that white people have white privilege. White people got property in whiteness. Whiteness is more than privilege. It's actual legal property. In the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, the case that created in, uh, segregation in America, Homer Plessy... With the cooperation of the police, the uh, the rail, the, the, you know, the, the rail conductors who were tired of enforcing this confusion, segregation in Louisiana, where everybody's all racially, you know, hybrid, and they cooperated, and they tested. Unlike Rosa Parks, they tested the state's Louisiana interstate, uh, uh, you know, segregation laws for for interstate travel, and Homer Plessy actually challenged. In the Homer Plessy case of 1896 that created Jim Crow segregation, that he was being denied under the 14th Amendment equal protection of the property a right to be white. And that's where I understand under the law, whiteness is actual property, not simply privilege. It has an economic value. We had a case here in uh, the Bay Area last week where a black couple were in Marin County, Marin City, where Tupac is really from. He called, he said Oakland, but Tupac was from Marin City, where black people are poor, but uh, but white people are filthy, filthy rich in Marin, but black people are poor there. And um, apparently a black a middle-class family had a home that was uh, – uh, estimated and evaluated and assessed at one value when they were seen as the owners. And then they had, this is last week in the liberal Bay Area. You can't get more liberal in America than here. And they subsequently had their white female friend act as the owner of the house for a subsequent appraisal, and the difference was $500,000. Now, that's half a million dollars because she was white, or because they were black. The white woman's value is plus 500. The black people's value is minus $500,000 in the 21st century in the most liberal section of America. You're going to tell me whiteness is privileged when you see that, that Kyle Rittenhauser, his mama, should be under prison, but she gave her son a ride across state boundaries. He did a drive-by, a walk-by, got water from the police. The police told him, we're glad you're here. He killed two people, got back in his mama's car. She drove back to Illinois. They went to a Republican event. The Republicans gave them a standing ovation. And, and, uh, a standing ovation. You got white folk, a white girl who stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop, was going to give it to Russia, and now she's home with her mama. And then you have a white man, the, the one with the Viking hat, doing all the screaming, leading the, 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 if that was Huey Newton, he would have been shot between the eyes. But this animal, white man, is dressed up, screaming, you know, acting like a Viking. And he uh, subsequently gets arrested, put in county jail, not even prison. Miss Graham, not even prison, county jail. And he's, being, he's given the privilege of um, organic food. And another white woman um, was a part of her job, had the, asked for the right to go to her job retreat 
were, we would think she'd be fired, but but she had the right to go to her job retreat in uh, in Mexico. And these are all pop, these are all well known uh, you know instances. So I, I don't want to hear about white privilege. White privilege is something a white person made up so you can use this stupid term until it fades out in the academy. Ms. Graham, you will never hear me using the language of the academy because there's always these white liberals, you know, mainly the feminists and the other ones that are, you know, deconstructionists, as they call themselves, or post-structuralists that don't believe in anything. They don't believe in anything except that everything is nothing. That's their belief. Everything is nothing. Chaos. You know, uh, uh, you know th- this kind of um, existential foolishness that black people ain't got time to play with, because they they can flirt with you know the meaning of life. You know, we trying to eat, we trying to we trying to get our kids home from being choked by the police when they walk in minding their business in the snow, like we saw one young man this week minding his business. Yes, it was cold. He was minding his business, articulated to the police what his circumstances were. He said, I do this all the time. Um, it, it doesn't bother me. I'm fine. Uh, he wasn't threatening anyone, wasn't bothering anybody. And you got this woman cop and a man cop, and they suddenly start attacking him because they wouldn't leave him alone. Then you had young Elijah um, uh, McClain, 23 years old in Aurora, beautiful, young, nerdy black boy, had zero thug or criminality in him, and it didn't matter whether he did or not because he was minding his business, walking down the street in the snow, some white man cop, white man in a uniform who, who is, whose job is a cop, but he's a white man first, he's a cop second. This white man who was hired as a cop in Aurora pursues him, bothers him, harasses him, attacks him, calls the paramedics and have him injected with some foreign medical substance to sedate him, and it killed him several days later. And this week the verdict, uh, the, the, the jury came back and said no true verdict. They did this, this week, Miss Graham, verdicts came back in Oakland on Oscar Grant. Uh, nobody heard it, but the other cop, not measurably, he did a year, the other cop. He uh, he was uh, you know effectively not charged this week. It happened in uh, the Aubrey case is still lingering on, um, and we just saw the anniversary of his death about three days ago to open up the wounds of, of Ahmad Aubrey and help us realize that the that five prosecutors in a city where a man was murdered in public with a gun by you know people who just attacked him for no reason. And five prosecutors in the local jurisdiction, instead of enforcing the law, as they would have if two, if two black men attacked a white man, they didn't even arrest him. And all of them kept passing the case on, and I think it took 230-some-odd days from the moment when they killed Ahmaud Arbery. Um, I believe there's an organization called 236 or something like that, 238, that marks the number of days it took them to actually arrest those two devils. Those Urugu devils is what they were, if you ever look at them, the father and the son. They look like monsters, uh, something that would haunt you. And I know Amar Aubrey, who they said was an avid athlete and an avid um, you know, runner who ran every day, we had to be stunned that he was being harassed by these two white men and then that his life was taken from him in broad daylight. And the city, the county, the law of the land would not prosecute these white men for cold-blooded murder in the middle of the day for a young man minding his business. And they all got exposed. And, 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 that, and, and, and that is how the law works in America. So I'm saying, Ms. Graham, that we need to stop waiting for the coming of apartheid, Ms. Graham. Ms. Graham, 
apartheid is here. That's apartheid I just described in about 15 cases that are in the news right now. Right now. Not, not, not in the future, because we're waiting for it to come, Ms. Ms. Graham, but I think it's already here. We're just waiting for it to be officially announced in a legal case, like I've said before, which is what Plessy, going back to Plessy, which is what Plessy versus Ferguson did, because the real segregation uh, in the post-Reconstruction era begins in 1877. So by 1896, it's been in place for 22, 22 years, and the Supreme Court finally catches up with it in Plessy and says, yeah, segregation is the law of the land. So we're in that, that inter-period right now. We're just waiting for Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and the rest of these racists on the Supreme Court. Many of them are. I don't care what the Republicans say or the conservatives say. Uh, bring me on Fox, and I'll defend my comments that they're racist. Um, they, they, they were sure... You know, people are saying they didn't give Trump what he wanted in terms of his taxes recently. But they sure gave Trump those five people that he wanted to kill before, with the death penalty before he left office, didn't they? But didn't they? And four of them were black men. Uh, and Amy Coney Barrett, she, you know, she says, you know, being called the N at work by your boss is not a racially hostile environment. And she's raising African children. Think about that. So what's their family's nickname for those kids? Um, I, you know, I bet you it's not public. Um, but, you know, but again, when you think about African-Americans uh, in terms of politics and their social movement history, there's no, they are the Michael Jordans of social movements. They, their songs, I remember when Nikolai Ceausescu was overthrown in, I think, in Eastern Europe, uh, the, the, they were singing in their own language, We Shall Overcome. They were singing We Shall Overcome in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and that just shows the power of black culture. African-American culture was so powerful, it inspired Stephen Biko's black, uh, 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 black consciousness. Black, it was nothing but South Africa's black version of black power, Stephen Biko. That shows you out of Oakland, out of, out of, out of Mississippi, with, with, with Carmichael and Willie Ricks, it spread all over the world to Israel, to Australia, to New Zealand, um, uh, you know, uh, throughout the world, young people identified with it, right? And, and that's just the power of, of, of just one demonstration of African-American culture. But their movements have always been about universal democracy for, for themselves, and they understood by implication it would be for all. And that's the orientation of black people in this country, generally speaking. That's their sort of common sense is that, you know, a universal rights for all because if that's the circumstance, they will benefit too. And that's precisely why the, their opponents and enemies oppose what they see as socialism because they understand that black, if black people are, you know, are able to benefit from it, you know, they would, you know, they would somehow uh, see an existential crisis. That's the, the problem we have in America. Unlike other whites who left their black or colonial subjects physically, um, you know, in all but a handful of countries, we are the only major black group on the planet, and this is why Africans should be humble when they come here. This is why West Indians should be careful what they say about us. We're the only ones still living as a minority where we were enslaved with the people who enslaved us. These white people did not go back. They think they're from here, Ms. Graham. And I, I'm trying to, before I leave here, I'm going to keep telling them, y'all ain't from here. 
Y'all, y'all can go back to Europe now. We're all a modern 21st century human beings. We now know the truth. Y'all can give us back all our gold, all our land, all our labor, all our reparations, and y'all can go back to Europe because y'all ain't from here. And, and that, you know, that's what they need to be reminded because as they increasingly become a minority, they need to be humbled racially and tell them they need to be taught that all of this evil that they're, they're, they're doing now in about 30, 45 years, their, grand, their kids and grandkids are going to be racial minorities uh, in, 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 in most of America, except in white pockets where they, where they create these white pockets. And that the white group might want to adapt like every other group does to living with other people on an equal level. Because the problem with the white group and our problem with our white group Unlike other black people who had the other white groups, the, the Portuguese left, the British left, Jamaica, the Portuguese left, um, Brazil, the French left, Haiti, the Spanish left, the Dominican Republic, the, the Europeans, all of them left Africa except the South Africans, all of them left except the South Africans, right? Um, uh, you know, there are no Europeans in most of West Indies except as minority groups and maybe capitalist owners, but they're still the minority, right? Nowhere on the planet, when you talk bad about black America, keep in mind, does a, does a black group on the planet live with their, with their tormentors still, centuries in? But we do. And Cornel West grasps this very powerfully in his book called Prophesied Deliverance uh, in uh, 1982, one of his best books uh, when Cornel West was, you know, uh, deeply in his scholarship and less into his public intellectual work. Uh, Prophesied Deliverance explains this dynamic that black people, unlike um, other uh, white, other Africans in the world, have a problem of not just our own double consciousness in relationship to America and Africa and racism, but we have a third leg, a third dimension of double consciousness that he called a, 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 tri, a, a tripartite, you know, dimension, a, a third dimension, um, a tertiary dimension, and that had to do with the fact that we were we blacks were with a white people who were no longer European and therefore have no European identity and only have a racial culture. They only have racism to make themselves feel like they are European because they are not European. They are uh, like blacks. If we're not Africans, as much as they always try to tell us, they're not Europeans anymore. And Cornel West grasps this in Prophesied Deliverance and, and beautifully, and he explains that these white people, they only, the only identity, identity most of them have, the, more, the, you know, the earlier ones, as they said their immigrant identity, is racism. And, and that is what he said is a crisis for, for black America, is these folks don't know how to be with us as fellow human beings. They can only be with us as inferiors and subordinates. And those days are gone. That's what black power told them. Hell no, this is over for good. And black power was the most beautiful moment in black people's history next to slavery being abolished. That's, that, 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 I don't care what they tell you about black power. Black power was the most beautiful moment in black people's history outside of the moment of liberation itself. It was the coming together of a generation that had assessed their ancestors' data. They understood, even despite the confusion at World War II and the Great Depression brought them, what their ancestors from the South who migrated wanted from them. They wanted them to seek education. They wanted them to seek excellence. They wanted them to excel. They really didn't want them to integrate. They just wanted them to be able to, th- to thrive 
And if the white people in America had been more creative with racism, they would have just given us the separate development and moved on. And we would have accepted it. Most black people had no problem with the separateness from whites. It was the inequality that was the problem of of Jim, of Jim Crow and Plessy versus Ferguson. It was the inequality of black conditions in the schools and in public life and jobs and and things of that sort. If whites had funded, if the if the, not whites, because this ain't about whites. Let me correct myself, because I think we need to stop thinking that this is white people and understand this is the American state. And if the American state had given black people reparations like they gave white people reparations for being white, then, then they would have developed us the same way they've developed these white people. The reason why these white people are losing their minds is, is because the middle class that FDR created for them was dead by the time Jimmy Carter gave his 1979 Malay speech that caused him his presidency and Reagan uh, uh, was able to come in on that, that that middle class dream of 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 the middle class you know warden June Cleaver you know of uh, the suburbia that was born in the 1950s was already dead by the 1960s but Jimmy Carter announced it in 1979 and it made him a one term president for telling the truth he said look what y'all dreamed about a one one man not 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 both not the wife one man's income, this is the middle class, this is um, the nuclear family lie. That, that was a lie, Miss Graham. I'll get to that in a second. The, you know, this one, one man's income with his wife and 2.5 children, a white picket fence, and a dog in the suburbs was not true. Uh, um, uh, and, and that's part of you know, what people don't understand. Uh, it was never true. Uh, even the nuclear family idea was a 10-year lie by which Daniel Patrick Moynihan judged us and black women and says that black women-headed households are pathological and that the absence of the man in the black household is the reason for all of their social pathologies. And he said that we were caught up in a tangle. Oh, a tangle of, of pathology is what he said about our deep black culture. This is from an Irishman whose people got here 250 years after we had already been here. They just got here. And he's made his well, way, as Ronald Takaki says, from 1848. To, it took Irish people 50 years into the year 1900 to, be, to become white in America because they were never white in Europe. The, the word Irish is the N-word for the, for the Celt, for the Gaelic person. The word Irish was their N-word. They were known as Celtic or Celtic, like Boston Celtics. They were not known as Irish. They were called Irish. Just like, and the Irish said, okay, we'll be Irish. And, and, and so when you think about, you know, this idea of the nuclear family, um, uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan is a Catholic uh, Irishman whose family was probably, you know, very large from being a Catholic family with a, with a patriarch at the head. So he's imputing on and transferring from his own immigrant image of family and imputing it onto black people and then saying, look, and the Negro doesn't live up to it, and it explains all their conditions rather than capitalism, rather than racism, rather than urbanization, right, rather than the deindustrialization, rather than the, um, the decimation of the urban core, you know, and the manufacturing base of the cities uh, at, like Newark and Detroit and Cleveland and Philly. And, and, and Roxbury, Boston, right, and, and L.A., and Oakland. Um, you know, rather than telling the truth and saying capitalism is dead, they tried to put it on black women. 
This is what Daniel Patrick Moynihan did. Because the real solution to everybody's problem in the black community is jobs and stability through jobs. That's it. Give a man a job, give a woman a job, and most of the things that you see as social problems, from violence to um, divorce to uh, truancy to other, you know, deviant behaviors, most of them would disappear overnight if people had jobs and stability in their lives. And everybody in America knows it. If you want to solve most of the problems that we think are intractable, give a young man who's in his 20s a job, and he'll put down his 357. He'll put down his Glock. Most of them will if they feel safe. In a, in a safe environment. But America doesn't make America, the city safe for our young men. America doesn't make it safe for, for our, our young men. So our young men are carrying guns to protect themselves, and all it takes is a, a step on a shoe, and next thing you know, the trigger is going. But Daniel, back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. This whole idea, Ms. Graham, of the nuclear family, uh, there's an article out, uh, I think it's in The Nation magazine, uh, The Nation, um, and it's written by the, uh, the conservative writer for the New York Times, and for some reason his name is not jumping to my head. Um, I'll think of it in a second. But he writes, and in the front cover of his uh, article, uh, it says, why the nuclear family was never true, and, um, and he explains how uh, you know, it was just a lie. The, the basis of which the Moynihan Report, Ms. Graham, and I know you know that report very well in all the debates and all the arguments and all the issues and how it affected black women at that time and what sisters' responses were and, and the, you know, the, the, the book that the sister wrote, the, the, the black superwoman and the myth of the black, you know, the black macho and the myth of the black superwoman and all of those debates and the, for colored girls who committed suicide when the rainbow was not enough. All of those debates come out of the Moynihan Report about black women in the neighborhood, black women in the ghetto, black women in the black community, what they meant. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, this Irish immigrant descendant, is going to characterize a, a people's family structure that has kept them in two, for 250 years. It has helped them in the most brutal circumstances amongst the brutal of the, and uh, in, in not, not absolutely most brutal in terms of violence, because other, like the Portuguese, were, were more violent, um, but in terms of the durability of their racism and us constantly being under their dominant gaze because we are the only black people still living with that majority, um, it has a, a particular effect. And so this idea that our families were pathological stigmatized us for the past 40, 50 years, Ms. Graham, for 50 years. For 50 years, we were told our female-headed household, Fox News, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, all these racist white boys would be on national television and their women on TV talking about the pathologies of the black family. Well, first of all, Michelle Alexander cites a, 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 a statistic from another source. I, I, I need to track it down. But that source, uh, which is by a Latina scholar, says that black men, if you measure them by the tape of white people's measure of weddings and marriage, then we come up bad. We look bad compared to white men. And uh, that's how it, it turned out, right? But th that article, the, the, uh, the, the statistics says also that black men, if you measure them by involvement in their children's lives, independent of the marital status with the mother, black men were more involved as fathers in their children's lives than any other group in America, including white men. That black fathers, even if they're not, if they're not married to the mama, they're still there. But for the white people's measure, they had to be married. He's there, they're just not married. He may not even be married to her. They might be living there together, or he might live down the street, or the whole fa his family, his family might be raising the kids. His family, not, not the wife, his, his mama. 
How many of y'all know with that situation where the, the, the male's mama raised the grandbabies? Y'all know a bunch of them from home, back in the neighborhood, and 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 yet they, you know, for, from one hand, all of these black people's adaptations, us having multiple, um, you know, women, matrilineal women in community, sisters in the South, you know, living near each other so that the whole family is being raised in community, which is stronger than a husband and wife at the head of the family. That, that is, let's keep that in mind. And the only race in the world that ever had this idea of two people being married, bound, locked under law and codified is the white man. No other race on the planet came up with this idea of one man with one woman. And I'm not even trying to advocate anything except to raise that point, that the white man through Christianity specifically is the only race on the planet to have this idea of monogamy, period. Not amongst the Native Americans. In fact, I was reading an article this week about the Native American groups. Some of them had a practice where because uh, the father would allow his brother to share his wife because, like in the Bible, when he died, she was going to the, the wife became the brother's, uh, the, the living brother's, in her, uh, you know, a, a wife. And so they became, they became more communal. If you read an article by Ingalls, Frederick Ingalls of the Marxist, uh, uh, Marxist partner, it's called Private Property, the Family, and the, Ameri and, and the State. It, it says that the revolution, in, the greatest revolution in history, in this art article by Ingalls on the family, private property, and the state, that the greatest revolution in Western history was, was the removal of women's power in terms of the succession of property rights into their children through communal sex love, what they call it. They said, like we used to say, mama's baby, daddy's maybe. And that's, what, that's all I'm saying. Mama's baby, daddy's maybe. And, and Engel says that was the norm. And then as he moved closer and closer to the modern era, to the Greco-Roman Greco era, to the Christian era, the family gets smaller and smaller and smaller, he says, down to one man over his property, beginning with his woman, who is his first slave, and then the rest of the family is a slave, and they are bound to the husband, and he is the husband man of the land and property itself, and everybody is bound. You are house-bound, husband, house-bund, husband, house-bound. You are house-bound to the husband. So when so so when you get this monogamy because Engels but you know again Engels says in that same article monogamy adultery and prostitution are triplets he says this because the norm was communal sex love and he said this is where women had power they lost power when they submitted themselves to one man and 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 so the idea that we are being judged by these um, uh, by this ten year period Miss Graham what I'm trying to say is. The idea of the nuclear family was only a 10-year-long period idea. It was only for the 50s. It didn't even make it into the 60s in whole. It was dragged and tattered by the time the uprisings of the 60s began challenging it, right? And so what we now know is that in the 10,000-year history of Western history and, 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 and human history, um, the idea of a husband and wife in a nuclear family is an American white idea born only in America in the 1950s and then used against us in the 1960s to shame us. And now we know for sure, statistically, black people with extended families, especially in the deep south like Louisiana and Alabama and Georgia uh, and other parts of the south, uh, Latino families and Native American extended family models 
were more normal and more common than the nuclear family model, even amongst white people in America when they were busy talking bad about ours. So look at the depths of the evil. There wasn't even a reality of the nuclear family amongst most whites. And now by 2015, with divorce rates and women having you know, choices, women having birth control, um, again, these things all come full circle. And so um, the idea now, Ms. Graham, that white people are dying in 30 states out of 55 states, well, that's because y'all was trying to live according to capitalism, keeping your kids down to 2.5. And guess what? The baby boomer, y'all are dying out. You, you know, that, that generation is evolving out. Therefore, you're losing 80 and 90 million people in that generation. They're not being replaced with new white people. Um, and as a consequence of the opioid crisis, which is 130 people dying a day, and low birth rates and high death rates amongst the white group, the only group in America dying out right now is the American white group. That's the facts. That's data. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. You can, you can research it. And so what I'm saying to you is all this shaming of black women in the hood when they were just trying to survive under conditions – Women like my mother, who raised 10 people in a four-bedroom apartment in a Long Island project where I was raised, were shamed as a social pariah and stigma when all along their, the depth of their wisdom, the depth of their survival, the depth of their adaptation, the depth of their mother's wisdoms that they inherited and passed on and tried to pass on to their daughters in the urban condition, which was very different, um, is why we are... Our birth rates, our population is going from 45 million to 65 million in 25 years, 45 million to 75 million by 2065, and they are dying out. So that's why when I talk about our spiritual culture, what Moynihan saw was black pathology because he's a white man who doesn't understand what he was seeing. He saw pathology, sisters saw survival. Sisters saw community. Sisters saw villages raising a nation. And like I told, um, I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute. Um, I, um, I, you know, I, had sat, I sat around recently and assessed some of the men in my projects where I grew up. And I realized that those men were always there. There were many, many men in our projects before crack hits that were protecting us. Crack changes all of that. But before crack hits in 80, 83, 84, those men that were in the projects with us in the 70s, they were there to protect us. Yes, there were some deviants, there were some criminals, but they were dealt with by the black community. If somebody hurt somebody in the community, somebody else went and whooped that behind, and you know they did. And it never even had to go to the police. The neighborhood would take care of it. And I'm not even talking about gun violence. I'm talking about just a beatdown because you put your hands on somebody's daughter that you weren't supposed to touch or said something to somebody's mama you weren't supposed to disrespect, right? Um, but... Black people, Ms. Ms. Graham, have been shamed for 50 years for our family structure. And I hope people have listened to me tonight, that your families are surviving. Anybody on, TV, on radio like Umar Johnson or any of these radical so-called, they want to be radicals, but they're, you know, these so-called, um, you know, militant, you know, black conscious thinkers, you know, who want to, you know, scare you to death and talk about black genocide, the data show that black population is exploding, Asian population is exploding, uh, Latino population is exploding, the white population is dying, even compared to white people all over the world, not just blacks. Um, this was about nine years ago, Ms. Graham, I saw a passing article, just real quick, it said um, birth rate of the, 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 um, the, the uh, mortality rate between black and white 
um, has declined for the to the lowest difference in history. That you know, in other words, it wasn't so much that things were getting better for us. It was things because we still have high infant mortality rates, uh, you know, uh, with, with birth rates and things of that sort. We're number one, right? Um, but it was that they all of a sudden start dying off. So this system they've created to keep all non-whites down now kills them more than anybody. And until they see that, we keep talking about our suffering. I could sit here and talk about our suffering. Nope, I want them to see this system is killing them too. Don't know white people in the world get shot 500, 500 white people get shot and killed by the police. In fact, 2,000 get shot, 500 get killed. 2,000 white people get shot where else on the planet? Somebody tell me. Where? England? No. Germany? No. Canada? No. Sweden? No. Um, uh, Holland? No. Um, um, uh, you know, France, no. Spain, no. Portugal, no. This white man then created his own death chamber. And it's killing him, and he's trying to kill us, and he can't. They killed off the Native Americans, they tried to kill us off, they can't. They keep trying to idealize, they, you know, Time Magazine and Newsweek had this computerized depiction of the future American, and they had all these mulattoes, so-called or hybrid or, or mixed-heritage black people and white people, you know, mixed-race people. And they tried to say, this is the future of America soon with all of the intermarriage. Well, if you look at 2010, 25 million ma- black people married each other. In 2010, 175,000 black people married white people. 175,000 black people total married white people in 2010. 25 million black people married each other in 2010. It is not a problem. Interracial love and dating and messing around, that's one thing. Marriage, black women and black men, when they marry, they marry each other, and it ain't even, it ain't even close. It's like 25 million to 100,000, 200,000. So, so um, our community, as long as we continue doing that, is going to be strong, and our traditions will continue to live, and our culture will continue to thrive because that's the basis of it is our, 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 you know, our families. And we need to recover our image because they have distorted it. While they were saying we were pathological and they were living in the middle classes, if you watch the show Mad Men, if you listen to Oprah, if you listen to uh, Roseanne Barr in the 80s and 90s, when they started talking about all the awful things that were going on in those houses in the suburbs, the abuse, the, you know, the adultery, um, you know, the violence of the men against these white women in, in suburbia, you know, um, that never got, you know, policed and prosecuted, um, uh, you'd realize that they were, it was never as pristine, it was never as distilled, it was never as pretty as the as the you know the 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 law you know the tree-lined uh, neighborhoods were black people even in the ghetto in our in our condition were still thriving spiritually we were still dancing we still had our music in those projects and in those rural poor places too in the south that never migrated where we still were we still had our blues we still had our jazz we still had our gospel we still had our spirituals we still had our incense we still had our voodoo we still had our hoodoo we still had our you know our 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 um you know the our numbers you know we still had the policy right we still had the policy what we call the numbers we still had our preachers. We still had our cult movements like the Nation of Islam, the Moorish Science Temple, and the Rastafari movement. Worlds that these and subcultures that these people never understood. Daniel Patrick Moynihan could never understand black people. And he's been exposed 50 years later 
for the lie that he told on black people, and the reality was that black people's so-called pathology was their survival. And white people's so-called perfection in the middle classes was actually the seeds and the ingredients for their erasure. I'm one of the only scholars I know who is saying and has said repeatedly, we may very well see in about 150 years the last white man in America go back to Europe, the un-Columbus. I'm the only person I know, so if y'all hear Charles Blow use that, because I think he stole one of my rhymes from the Carl Nelson show, but I can't prove it, because he's now going around talking about the black migration south, and I've been talking about that for five years on Carl Nelson's show. Um, uh, but, but in this instance, um, you know, the African-American group is, is deeply um, prepared for the next century. Uh, if you think we've gotten weaker, that we're somehow dying out and the black group is, what have you been watching since uh, 2008? Because we've been moving. We've been that, the, the movement we've been talking about throughout the 90s, and in spite of the Million Man March, the movement we've been talking about is here. The young people we've been waiting for, they're here. The, the reaction to them, it's here. And it almost, it's, and we are now on the verge, like in the 1890s and 1870s, of whether or not America's going to go back to its tradition of apartheid, Jim Crow. It's only been one life cycle. Dr. Jones and, and Fred Gray, both of Martin Luther King's lawyers, listen carefully, both of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks' lawyers are alive. Andrew Young is alive. Jesse Jackson, God bless him. I love Jesse Jackson. I don't care what people say about Jesse Jackson. I love Jesse Jackson, and you should too. Don't let them tell you who your leaders are. If it, I don't want to get off, off point, but I, I do want to make this point. Jesse Jackson deserves our praise in spite of whatever shortcomings he had between him and his family. That's his. He's got to deal with that. He and his family have dealt with that. I'm not trying to excuse anything. I'm simply saying that Jesse Jackson is why Kamala Harris is vice president. Jesse Jackson is why Pete Buttigieg is transportation secretary. Jesse Jackson is why Barack Obama was president. Jesse Jackson is why Joe Biden, Obama's vice president, is now president. Jesse Jackson is why Elizabeth Warren was viable. Jesse Jackson is why Klobuchar was viable. Jesse Jackson, with the rules changed in the Democratic Party in the 1970s with McGovern and Humphrey around that time period, is why you end up with so much more diversity in the Democratic column, and you likely will never have another white man president um, after Biden from the Democratic Party, or you, uh, let me correct myself, you will likely always have a person of color from now on on the Democratic ticket going forward, a brown or black person or, or a Native American or an um, Asian person with somebody white. That's likely the future of, of the party from now on. So Kamala and uh, Obama and, and Biden and, Kamala and Biden and Kamala are the model for the Democratic Party for the next 30 to 40 years. Um, and that's because of all this diversity. But I want us to understand the root of it was black people. It was black people and Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson, when he ran, he opened up all of this. So no matter what you think of him, because he scandalized himself temporarily for a period of time, and he had you know, begun you know, doing the strategy of going behind incidents and trying to extract money out of corporations and stuff, and how Fox and all these dedicated anti-Jesse Jackson racists, especially some of the people we know who really hated him most for his Jaime Town comment in New York, how they resented him for that and never forgave him for that and still hold him. You know, they, they say Jesse Jackson's anti-Semitic. Jesse Jackson has proven he's not an anti-Semitic. 
Where's the anti-Semitism in Jesse Jackson's life? He made a comment, right, a stupid comment, and now where's the follow-up to it? In the past 70 years of his life, where's Jesse Jackson's evidence other than a stupid comment, right, right that he apologized for for the next 30 to 40 years? But Jesse Jackson made it possible um, by democratizing the democratic primary process for everything that is not a white man. For everything that's not a white man, say thank you, Jesse Jackson, for the rest of your life. Him and Ronald Walters, Ron Daniels, um, Janice Graham, um, uh, Ella Baker, um, you know, um, uh, 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 um, I'm thinking of Fannie Lou Hamer. These women were about the party strategy. Those sisters did like the black and tans in the 1870s and created a black party within the Democratic Party in Mississippi, and they call it the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. That's political sophistication. Across centuries, from the black and tans to Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to the Black Panther Party of Alabama of Loudoun County that SNCC was working with, to the Black Panther Party of Oakland that borrowed both the name Panther from the blacks in the South and self-defense from black folk in Louisiana and Monroe, of the, the deacons of defense, the Panthers were simply borrowing from, from black folk in the South where they came from, where Huey came from. Huey came from Monroe, Louisiana. So he was aware of the deacons of defense. So the Black Panther Party, early use of the word for defense comes from that. And that's coming from the black roots of the deep South culture. It's not Oakland. The, the Black Panther Party is more, more Louisiana than it was Oakland. They'd only been in Oakland since 43. And they said black power in 66. You think they got that angry that quick in just a quarter of a century of being here? No. They were extending their cultural foundations of Louisiana culture into Oakland and L.A. L.A. and Oakland was full of black uh, Louisiana clubs, Arkansas clubs, um, Kentucky clubs, Mississippi clubs, uh, um, and the like. Because people wanted to, you know, retain home or peace of home. Or, and that's how black communities organized themselves in L.A. and up here in the Bay Area um, during the black migration period, right? And, and the, the beauty of this, Ms. Graham, if you, if, you know, I know I'm giving a lot of information, but I, but I hope you see the flow of it, the, con, the continuity of it, the, the, con, the total constitution, the, the big idea. If you can't hold up and keep up with the, the facts, the big idea is, our culture has survived, helped us survive, and not just survive, but thrive, and to do things even in politics that no other group has been able to achieve. Again, no other group has the history. Not, no other white minority group has had the Latinos are not as politically sophisticated as black people. Whatever Latinos have done in the past 75 years, they did it because they watched us. They didn't do it on their own. From Cesar Chavez watching King to Jorge Gonzalez and um, Rejas Tiarina watching the Panthers, uh, um, you know, watching, watching the Black Panthers here in, 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 in the West Coast to the, 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 the young lords in, 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 in up in Harlem and in Chicago. They, they aren't coming up with these ideas. This isn't the brown power movement. This ain't the yellow power movement. Yellow peril, they were responding. The Native Americans, they were responding. The black movement is the key to democracy for all. Because whenever we move, everybody else gets free. Gays have never been as free in this land as they are right now. And gays, I don't care what their race is, 
especially non-black gays, LGBTQ, they should have a real certain attitude towards us other than the one they actually often give us. I've been in San Francisco for 20 years, ground zero, the capital of the gay community in the world, so I know what I'm talking about. Black people are not welcome in the Castro. Gay black people are not welcome in the Castro. So, so, but yet they are, they are now recognized as full citizens in every way in the military and in civil society because they were able to use the tools, strategies, and methods and moral appeals of the black movement. They did not have their own. Even this idea that the, uh, the riot that happened in New York with the police, um, it, it, there was one called the Compton riot that happened first in San Francisco, but the Stonewall riot in New York City was not even a big deal, Ms. Graham. I teach this stuff. I'm in San Francisco. This event happened when, you know, a transgender person, I think was black, got dis- you know, there was an incident, a, a small fight broke out, and nobody even knew about it, even in the gay community for years. When they saw it, they adopted it and said, this is going to be our Rosa Parks moment, and that's what they did. They subsequently, in years after, made um, Stonewall the, the, the civil rights moment, the bus moment for gays, but the truth is, they didn't even come up with that themselves. The Stonewall idea that all gays see as the launching of their movement is not their idea. It wasn't. In other words, Stonewall was an afterthought to politicize. They, the gay community politicized the idea, and it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I'm not killing it. I, it was brilliant. But let's be clear. It was not their original idea. It was not their original thought because it was not a part of their original strategy. Whatever gays were doing, they were watching us. And, and I'm talking about non-black gays, because I want to acknowledge all gays are not white. Um, non-black gays, um, uh, they were watching our movement, uh, and, they, and, they, and they took what they could, and that's fine. I'm not complaining. Like our music, use it. Don't, don't appropriate it. Respect it. But give us a certain a respect. And I think the gay community in America should have a general disposition towards us. I think every gay flag should have black and brown in it. Only a couple do. Most of them don't. And they need to have black and brown in all their flags, and they should be bolder than every other color in the flag because the black and brown movements have made it so that two white men are now common or two men are now commonly marketed enduring on primetime television, you know? And that's part of what this white general reaction is. So, so, so to bring this, you know, um, full circle, black people's past strategies have, have varied from petition, public advocacy. Um, a, a woman named Maria Stewart, you might look her up, out of Massachusetts. She was a black nationalist. I talk about her in my book entitled Black Nationalism in the United States. I hope you will get a copy of my book because much of what I've talked about over these four, four weeks, you can read it in detail in that book. But I talk a lot about a woman named Maria Stewart who was credited with being the first woman to publicly speak in a public forum in America out of Massachusetts in the 19th century, uh, and she wrote her own um, uh, biography, a short one. Um, and Maria Stewart um, was supported by Alexander Crummel, um, and, uh, and Bishop, I want to say it was Alexander Crummel and um, Henry Garnett, I think it was, and there was um, uh, one other uh, a black nationalist leader who helped her get her pension when she was mistreated by the state in Massachusetts. Um, they wouldn't give her her husband's um, you know, retirement when he died. They fought for her. They even buried her. 
you know, a lot of the modern black feminists like to say black nationalists and chauvinists and sexists and all this because they exaggerate aspects of the black power movement for their modern feminist purposes. But if you study the history of, of Maria Stewart, nothing but black nationalist men supported this sister. When, when she was alive, they supported her to get her retirement, her death benefits from her husband. And when she died, they were the only ones there to bury her. But Maria Stewart uh, was – and you have to imagine the spectacle of a Negro woman. Any woman speaking in public was a spectacle. But a Negro woman speaking in Massachusetts with, with, with power is, is part of our spiritual culture. Miss Graham, there is a reason why God allowed for the most important book ever written in our history to be one of the first. The W.E. Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk, is hands down the most important book ever written by a black man or woman in my opinion, because of what it did in our soul, to, to us psychologically. It explains why Paul Robeson rises, why Zora Neale Hurston rises, why the, you know, the black arts movement rises, the talented 10th, Martin Luther King rises. Without Du Bois, there is no king. And that's why it's deep that King, that Du Bois dies on the exact day in Africa on the day King gives I have a dream. If you don't see spiritual culture right there, then it's because you are spiritually blind. You can't see that Du Bois dying on the day I have a dream after 96 years or 95 years of frontline struggle, and he's so angry with this country, even, his, even though Nkrumah invited him out there to do some research, that he's, he's in Africa and dies in Africa. He could have died the day after, the day before, three days later, but he dies what he corresponds to the, the, the morning of the uh, I have a dream speech in, March, uh, in August 28, 1963. And it's that spiritual culture that I want to talk about briefly, because that's the whole point of being black in America. Like a, like, it's almost like being Jewish, but not in America, Jewish in, in the Bible or Jewish in the ancient times, you know, as an oppressed people, because Jews are not oppressed in America. They might be the subject of anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. but Jews are not oppressed here. Um, they're not oppressed as a group. Uh, you know, an individual hating or targeting, you know, that's, that's violence. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no massive uh, pogrom-type development here. But this, but what my point is, if anybody has Jewish type spiritual status as a group in America, is black people through their through, through their brown skin, their skin tone, and their racial predicament, and their own adoption of the, the ideas of the Bible, like the 400 years of Exodus, Moses as a motif, and things of that sort. We adopted those things because they resonated with a lot of our history. So we likened ourselves to Jews in America, to God's chosen people who being oppressed right for 400 years. And, and Harriet Tubman was our first Moses, and Martin Luther King was our last across 100 years. That's our spiritual culture. And, Ms. Graham, that's why Du Bois' words are so important. When he, that book is called The Souls of Black Folk. Du Bois was so genius in that because the real title, the subtitle is, I mean, the, 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 another way of that title, another way of saying that would be The Souls of the Black Nation. That's what he's really saying, The Souls of the Black Nation within the white nation. He writes another book uh, in 30 years later called The Gift of Black Folk, telling America, we are a gift to you. You're lucky to have us here. And, and Du Bois, with the, the word souls of black folk, I'm trying to get us to understand that that language, the souls of black folk, captures what I think every black movement is about. I think every black movement we've ever had is simply about the souls of black folk from every generation trying to get free from the obstacles that they determine in their cycle, their 30 years in terms of, you know, coming up from teenage to adulthood and political awareness, um, up into, you know, the first 30 years of their lives, and, and become aware of what's important to them. So black people have a deep spiritual culture that white folk don't have. White folk have a racial culture. 
They have a racist culture because they call themselves white. They used to be Italians, Jews, Irish, you know, French, German, but then they became white. See, that's race. So they only have race. They don't have ethnic Irish Italian Jewish identity, except, you know, in certain moments, like St. Patty's Day or, you know, in, in Little Italy, you know, here and there, but they're completely assimilated, assimilated. The white ethnics of America are completely assimilated and sold out. All of them are sold out. None of them are on the side of black people as a, as a group. Nobody, except maybe Latinos, and, the, and them is mainly the Puerto Ricans in the East Coast, not so much everybody else that still sympathize with us as a group. Chicanos still do. And, and you know, and, and Native Americans often still do. But to, but to bring this all you know to a close, I just want to make you know the the, the, the key point. The, the, my main argument is the souls of Black folk is the most powerful force in this land. It is more powerful. The only thing more powerful than it is the nuclear bomb in this country. Not the police, not the American state, not 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 white racism, not white supremacy, not white people, not white wealth. All of that they've got, and what have we learned today is happening amongst them and what's happening amongst us. We need reparations so we can improve our economic conditions, but our spiritual culture is one that every group should put in a bottle and put in their own uh, for use so they can survive too. Only those groups that have spiritual culture right now who can pray to something that they believe in, who can sing with joy, who can dance, who can, who can scream and shout, who can put their hands up in the air, who can think about their ancestors, who can think about the good of their people, who can think about the good that their young people are doing right now in the streets, who can think about the good of their young people who rose up in the George Floyd moment to say no democracy will. Those young people, Ms. Graham, were fighting to save democracy. Latasha Brown in Georgia, the bus, um, the, the, the Black Vote Matters bus, um, uh, Stacey Abrams, those sisters were, and brothers were fighting to save democracy for the world. Black people's culture, even democracy is ours more than it's the whites. The white people have proven to you they don't really believe in democracy. They've proven to you that democracy meant blacks on bottom, white on top. And that's what Malcolm said. It was hypocrisy. But we are the real keepers of democracy. We're, just like our jazz and our blues, nowhere in America is democracy written down in a book, in a text. In other words, democracy is not in the Constitution anywhere. That word does not exist in the Constitution once. Not once. Not once is democracy in the U.S. Constitution. Not once is the word democracy in the Declaration of Independence. Not once is the word democracy in, in any of the state constitutions. Black people are the ones who have made democracy like they did jazz and blues and cults, their, their, their religious groups, their religious sects in the cities, um, uh, uh, like they did ragtime, like we did hip-hop, like we're doing right now with trap. Black people in their creativity, we, we, we preserved that spiritual culture. And, 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 and what, what black power was in 1966 was simply an expression of that black spiritual culture coming out of Malcolm, coming out of the nation coming out of the Panthers saying, we don't want the religiosity of the nation, but we want his power. They kept the power. They got rid of the, the Islam, the nation of Islam. Elders Cleaver was a member of the nation in prison. When, they, when the Panthers encountered Malcolm's religion, they rejected religion, but they keep his power. So when they uttered black power with Stokely and Willie Ricks in, 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 in Mississippi in 66, Martin Luther King is there that night. The only four people spoke that night. Willie Ricks, Stokely Carmichael, Martin
them with black power. The nation of Islam, black, black is our black power. And when black power was uttered, it was the secularization of that phenomenon. And now we, uh, as a people, should understand that black power was it was finally. Was, was, was black folk finally being honest with white folk? We got rid of the Father Divine. We got rid of a lot of our, you know, the, the trickster aspects of it that covered up the power, the secular power intentions. And when black power was uttered, then they could see it for what it really was. It really was simply black people seeking secular power. Father Divine, Nation of Islam, the Moorish Science Temple, Rastafari, the, the, the Five Percenters, all of that was all about getting secular black power. And the Panthers and, the, and SNCC finally made it clear, coming out of influence of King and, and the nation, both Christian and Islamic, and they secularized it when they said black power. They meant no more religious influence per se, but we're going to keep the power and we're going to let these white folk know and capitalists know we reject it. And so when you think about our culture, when you think about our methods, our strategies, petitioning, public advocacy, our spiritual culture is always at the root. That's why when we're singing, we shall overcome. I got tired of hearing that song in the 80s, Miss Graham. I, I, I mean, I'm old enough. Well, I didn't want to hear it in the 80s. You know, and that was close to King. King died in 69. I wouldn't have been like 11 years after. Uh, at 60, you know, 68, rather. And, and, and they were, you know, always, we shall overcome. Oh, Lord, please, let's, say, let's sing Fight the Power. The public enemy. Forget we shall overcome. Let's sing Fight the Power. That's my generation. Fight the Power. Chuck B, public enemy. Spike Lee. Fight the Power. No more we shall overcome. You know, and then I listened to Martin Luther King recently in a, in a newly discovered speech talking to a crowd out in public, in outside, outdoors, on a, on a, on a microphone. And King says... Look at our history. Look at what we beat. Look at what we've overcome. Look at what we've overcome. We overcame slavery. We overcame their, their racism in the South. We overcame their peanuts system, their convict leasing system. We overcame their sharecropping system. We overcame their gaze and their control and their Jim Crow by simply leaving the South. And, and King said, we beat all of that on our own, not with no white man help. He said, and because we overcame that, that's the logic of we shall overcome. So, Ms. Graham, I have to humble myself as a post-civil rights baby and acknowledge that we shall overcome was actually packed with black wisdom saying, look at what you've done before. Look at what you already beat. Look at what you've already conquered. You beat slavery. You beat slavery, not Abraham Lincoln. You beat slavery. You beat Jim Crow. Did nobody do you no favor? You went to the bus uh, in Wichita, Kansas, Ronald Walters sitting at the sit-ins, the first sit-ins, and then in, in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. The students did that. In, in White and black, Puerto Rican, Asian, they did that. They rose up. They brought democracy into America where white people only meant a system where whites were on top that they called democracy. And now in the 21st century, they can no longer hide their racist white democracy lie. We all have technology and can see and can get intelligence and can learn. And now we know that um, they are in spiritual trouble as a people. What you saw on January 6th was the spiritual death of white America is what I'm trying to tell you. They don't have nothing left. They made Trump their God, if you saw it. Seventy-five million of them saw all of what we saw that made us despicable, you know, turned us off in 2015. And these folks blessed it. And they are, they're behind it. And they don't have nothing 
spiritual to hold on to because all they had was race and racism. And now that we can surpass them, whether it's Tiger Woods or Barack Obama or Kamala Harris, they can't lie like that anymore. So they can no longer live behind the white lie of white superiority. All it ever was was America's state holding them up and keeping everybody else not white down. And now that the state can't do that anymore, they're in crisis. And so the American state lied to white people and told them they were superior to us and told them that we were inferior. And without the state's unfair foot on our neck and holding them up unfairly as the chosen race of all racial groups in America, and there's a bunch of them, and the, white, and the American state only held up one, consequently, the American state, I don't care if every white person in right. history um, doesn't, didn't hold a slave, uh, didn't have a slave. The American state was alive, wasn't it, Ms. Graham? White people are quick to say, slavery was so long ago, I never had slaves. Well, James Taylor and Our Common Ground and Ms. Graham is saying the American state was here. The American state was here in 1619. The American state was here in 1776, a 1787. The colonies and the American uh, state, the col colonial states and the American states, um, they were here. The American government was here over slavery. That's who we're getting reparations from. We don't want reparations from you white folk. We want reparations from the state. And you want white folk are quick to talk about how y'all weren't here. Okay, y'all weren't here. America was, and America did this sin. So America must pay reparations. And for me, Ms. Graham, reparations must be a permanent situation. Black people should, Ms. Graham, and you're not going to hear this from anybody else anywhere, Ms. Graham, but I believe reparations should be for three, four hundred years, just like slavery. Look at, look at, what, look at what Trump did for the, for the corporations, Ms. Graham. Trump gave the corporations a permanent tax cut. Look at that. See, it's possible. These white people can do it if they want to in the state. They could give black people a permanent reparations tax cut that has economic impact in our lives. Biden could forgive student debt, and it would be a kind of reparations in terms of millions of dollars back into black communities. But he won't. After all we did, and he says he has our back, but on the easiest thing that he could pass simply by an executive order, he don't need Republicans. He could do it all by himself, and he says, I won't be doing that, as his first policy statement to us, after what we did for him. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, we keep getting these kind of reactions, but black people continue to strive. We've used violence, and I'm not going to sit here and try to de delegitimize violence. Violence, there's a book called Black Violence a serious scholarly academic book called Black Violence, and it documents how the black power movement got economic returns in the millions because of black violence. Black violence got economic responsiveness, uh, the, the investments in the community programs um, where the Panthers came out of, um, uh, you know, those, the, the different, you know, uh, pro programs. So, so, so black power, you know, um, you know gave us a, a lot and, and, and that's why it's still alive. I'm in Oakland, and that's why I'm talking about it. You've got to understand, I'm, a, I'm in Oakland. I'm in Oakland. I'm where the Panthers are still here. Angela Davis is in Oakland. Bobby Seale's in Oakland. Erica Huggins is in Oakland. Um, Frederica Newton is in, in Oakland. David Hilliard is in Oakland. That's everybody but Huey, Miss Graham. They're all still here. A big man died recently, a big man uh, that was Huey's right-hand man. He died recently. But the other group, Elaine Brown, that's six. They, they all walk around in Oakland. I see them every other day at the coffee houses, the cafes before COVID. You see Angela Davis. You see Frederica Newton. You see them anywhere, Bobby, Bobby Seale, anywhere in Oakland. They're still here. 
when you when you're in Oakland, the Panthers are in Oakland. Like like the civil rights movement is still in Atlanta, where John um, John um, John Lewis, Martin King, Andrew Young, Joseph Lowry, CCT, I think C. T. Vivian was there, and all of what we know about the you know the black church civil rights establishment, um, uh, you know from is in is in Atlanta, and that is still alive in the culture. Whenever something goes down, that's what Miss Graham. That's what made Georgia blue. It was the spirit of King and the spirit of Coretta and the spirit of T.T. Vivian and the spirit of, of John Lewis. And the young people today understood that, and they did it for them. That's our spiritual culture. It has political impacts and consequences. And I'm saying here in Oakland, just like you have a certain tradition in, in Atlanta, and the same is true of Detroit, the same is true of Philly, Boston, and the same is true of Chicago, and other places, but here in Oakland, everybody knows it's the Panthers. So right now in Oakland, the Panthers are all over every building. The, the Panthers are in the air. Black power is on people's T-shirts. Black power is on the buildings. Black power is on OPD's cars. Black people have kept black power alive. It never died. And I'm saying to you, black power never died, Ms. Graham, because it was simply an expression of the souls of black folk. All of it. All of it. And this is what Vincent Harding conveys by using the river metaphor. He says it was all a river. It was all a deep, beautiful black river in the ocean of white hate. And that beautiful black river is why we are alive and our river is going to be okay. And theirs is in complete distress because they made us their purpose around slavery and capitalism, political economy. And now both slavery and capitalism have run their course, and these people don't know what to do except express outright racism. And they are now openly doing it in the Senate, openly doing it in, at the governor's seats. You've seen 170 uh, state uh, laws erected to try to make sure they get ready for 2022 and 2024 because of what just happened. Black people, if you are satisfied with Georgia, please have that party and let's get back on the ground. We need to be already mobilizing for 2022 at every level because Trump is already talking about running again. And we need to make sure that we stop these things and prevent them from happening. But it will be our spiritual culture that will do it. I don't, call, I don't care what you call it. Call it Black Lives Matter. Call it the movement for black lives. I don't care what the policy issue is, whether it's housing, policing, um, uh, you know, discrimination, um, things of that sort. Um, you know, jobs, it's still black people's spiritual culture that they have in common, that they mobilize and organize around, that they thrive on, and it's not commodifiable because, like I said, the, the brightest of them from Harvard, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, called our family pathological for 50 years, and actually we were representative of the typical family in America, and now our model is what's keeping people alive, and their model is why you have a kind of um, genocide going on in the in the white group in terms of birth rates. It's birth rates. It's not it's not it's not racism. It's not immigration. Excuse me. It's not brown people coming across the border that's making the white a group the minority. It's birth rates. And so, with that said, you know, be thankful. Turn on your blues. Turn on your Cheryl Lynn. Listen to To Be Real. You know, turn on McFadden and Whitehead. Ain't no stopping us now. Turn on Good Times with Sheik. Turn on you know some James Brown. You know, when you get off the show, after we get off, I know I've been on, but when you get off the show, put on your blues, put on your jazz, put on your gospel, put on your spiritual, and relish in it, and say thank you to whoever you want to say thank you to. 
I don't care if it's James Brown singing or Howlin' Wolf singing or Muddy Waters singing or, 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 or if it's, you know, Big Mama Thornton. Say thank you. Because those people are why we are who we are. It is the spiritual culture that they bring, they they preserved, and they kept giving it to us. They kept giving it to us. Sometimes they had to turn it into chitlins. Sometimes they turned it into hog mugs. Sometimes they turned it into oxtail. Sometimes they had to turn it into, they had to turn pig guts into something for us to survive when that's all we could have was pig guts and fat back and hog mugs. And we made that into a our kind of diet for a, a time with salt pork. My mother's from the South. I know I know what they ate. My mama's from South Carolina. I, my grandfather is from South Carolina. I know what I'm talking about. And, and, and our people survived because, yes, you might be a Muslim now, brother, and righteous now, and saying all, all praise due to Allah now, but your grandmother made some chitlins for your grandma, your, for your granddaddy and your, and your mama, so your mama could survive another day. And them chitlins is what kept your mama alive so you could become a righteous Muslim. So don't look down on your grandmama and her chitlins. Her chitlins is why you are righteous. And that's the depths of our culture. And don't let nobody take it from you. If I die tonight, don't let nobody take this from you. It is what Du Bois says is your gift. You are a gift to these people. You are a gift to this land. If it wasn't for you, America would be dead. Now, as of this past November, America would have died if it wasn't for black America. And they're still trying to kill it. But it would have definitely died recently. But thanks be to God and thanks be to our people. Thanks be to our culture. Thanks be to women like you, Miss Graham. Because you were on the front lines then, you're still on the front lines now. You still got the same love for your people now that you've always had. And everybody that you, you know, came up with um, has that, you know, those who are still with us, they still got that, that passion and that, that, that love. And they're still trying to teach. They're still influencing. They're still mentoring. The Panthers are, 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 are talking to young people left and right here. I've been in numerous panels with none of the famous Panthers, but a lot of the, you know, the, the rank and file here in Oakland. I've never been with a famous Panther on the panel, and I, I don't think I want to either because that's intimidating. I'll, I'll stick with the rank and file. Um, but anyway... Uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up here, Ms. Graham, and just leave it at this. Black, cult- black people's spiritual culture is what Du Bois meant by the souls of black folk. So that's the scholarship. That's the foundation of what I'm talking about. Harold Cruz talks about it because Cruz is clear on what Du Bois is about. Harold Cruz is probably the best student W.E.B. Du Bois ever had. He wasn't his student, actually. I'm talking about intellectually, who, who follows Du Bois' thinking. Crisis of the Negro intellectual ain't nothing but a, 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 a Du Boisian analysis of black leadership c- carried out by uh, Harold Cruz, because he understands the role of Du Bois and Booker Washington and many of the sisters that, that he unfortunately does not name in, in that early development. But what Du Bois said in the beginning, Ms. Graham, I'm trying to hold on to an understanding of 110, 120 years later. I think that's still what we're doing. I think our spiritual culture is still at work. I think it's why, even with COVID killing us disproportionately, who buried 100,000 black people recently? Mostly black preachers. Preachers. Our preachers. I don't care how many of our comedians clown them and joke about them. When you open up the souls of black folk, Du Bois talks about going to a church scene in, in, in Mississippi, in Tennessee, and he says when he, what he noticed was the, 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 the power of the church, the, the power of the slave religion, he said, was the preacher, the music, and the frenzy. 
See, that's our spiritual culture. And the fact that black people sent a preacher from Martin Luther King's pulpit to the Senate in the process of turning the state blue and getting rid of all of these racists, if you don't see the spirituality in that, then it's not me. It's you who just can't see it, but it's right there for you to see if you want to. And Du Bois's use of the language, the souls of black folk, as the beginning of the civil rights and black power, because that was an expression of black power. All the souls of black folk was, was another way of saying black power. The New Negro Movement was another way of saying black power. Black power was nothing but another way of saying black power. Black Lives Matter ain't nothing but another way of saying what? That's right, black power. And so black power is alive because racism is still alive. Black power is part of our deep black culture, and we will keep it alive as long as we got to use it as a utility and as our spiritual foundation to survive in this um, foreign land, in this wilderness, as the Nation of Islam used to call it, in the wilderness of America, until they come correct and grow up off their racism. And that's what has to happen in America. White people have to come, become mature. They are spiritually um, probably darkened, but many of them are spiritually immature, still on 19th century and 18th century and 17th century racism in the 21st century. And yet black people have been trying to get past racism for four centuries and have been past it intellectually and spiritually. We are not racist. We, we are a people who are not a racist people. We are more mature than they on that point. You could talk about science and technology and all of that, fine. We can have that conversation. But on this point right here, on the spiritual maturity tip, I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about humanity. I'm talking about humanitarian ability to relate to other human beings. Black people have been able to love everybody else, even sometimes more than they love themselves. But the white group, if you look at Michael Bradley's book called The Iceman Inheritance, a white scholar out of Canada, The Iceman Inheritance, he talks about this problem that they have. They have a problem of being around other human beings on equal terms. And that's a sickness that James Baldwin so beautifully diagnoses. He said... You created the nigger. That makes you, that's you. You put. We were never that. Toni Morrison says to Charlie Rose, "I knew I was superior to them in my culture. I knew we weren't racist. I knew we would." This is what Toni Morrison says in, in the YouTube clip to Charlie Rose. She says, "I always knew." She says this. She says they are bereft, and that's what that's all I'm saying, Miss Graham. I'm saying, like Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, our culture is spiritual and deep and ancient, and we will survive it if it takes 500 more years from now. They just died recently, and you watched it on January 6th, because they are bereft. And as Toni Morrison said, as, as when she grew up, she said she always knew that what she learned from her ancestors, what she learned from the black women, the quilting women, the women doing quilts, the, the elder women in the rocker chairs on the porch, she said she knew that what they were was so much more than what the white was in terms of this ability to relate to other human beings. And Baldwin says, you created the end. So that's you. you Frankenstein. The end, I'm trying to be respectful of the show, the end is you. You called us the end, but Frankenstein, now in 2021, you realize after Obama shamed you and Trump showed up, Compare Obama to Trump. Who is the end? So you see it now, can't you? So what I'm saying to you, and I'm not being ethnocentric, I'm looking at our, our, our spiritual history, our spiritual culture, which includes our religion, but it's not necessarily religious. And that's been my whole point. It's, it's really secular, and the religion is a trickster move. And black power clears us of it. 
black power disabuses us of it. Black power says all the religious covering of black power, move out the way. Malcolm, we, we love you, but take the religion. Elijah, we love you, take the religion. King, we love you, take the religion. Black power! And then everybody got it, because it wasn't religious, and it scared everybody to death. But Father Divine and everything backwards to the Reconstruction period between the 1890s and the 1950s, all of that was a search for black power after slavery. So that's, this is a combination of sources, Ms. Graham, from uh, Joseph Washington's book, Cult and uh, 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 Black Sex and Cult, S-E-C-T-S. Black Sex and Cults is one book I'm using right now. That's, that's one uh, book I'm, the, I'm theorizing with as I'm having this discussion. And then Harold Cruz's article called Black and White is not well accessible, but I do have a copy if somebody wants it. Um, it's called Black and White. Uh, it was going to be his next book in 1973, but he only wrote three chapters of it and serialized it in Black World and the Negro Digest, but he didn't publish it as a book. And he talks about it. He uses the word. Cruz does. The word spiritual culture is not mine. The word spiritual culture is Harold Cruz's from the crisis of the Negro intellectual, he says it even in that book. He talks about our spiritual culture. So when he's talking about Lorraine Hansberry and Ozzie Davis and everybody gets all mad with him doing all this name dropping, he's still talking about the spiritual culture, whether he criticizes them as artists or not as a second, you know, secondary issue. That's a, you know, that's a performative issue. But, but you know, in terms of what, it should be, what, should be, what, what art should be doing, and that's what his beef would, you know, Cruz and, and James Baldwin went to school together in Harlem when they were children. And most people don't know that. But Cruz and Baldwin were chill. I think they went to PS 136 or PS 123 together. And Cruz's problem with Baldwin was he said Baldwin, you know, wouldn't go to the implications of his of his arguments to a kind of black nationalist understanding. And eventually Baldwin does kind of land up in a in a black nationalist you know position more so than his early integrationism, especially around sex love as he engaged in. So again, the the, the souls of black folk is the, is is the theme of tonight's conversation. The souls of black folk is the rue, R-U-E. If you're from Louisiana and you can hear us, you know what I'm talking about. The souls of black folk is the rue of being black in America. It is the glue, and it is what we keep thinking is something new, what we keep naming it. We call it NACP integrationism. We call it King's integrationism. We call it Malcolm's nationalism. We call it Garveyism. You know, we can, we can call it, you know, um, you know, different things, socialism, radicalism. But it's all black people's desire in this land because we are in unique circumstances amongst all black people on the planet. We've adapted this. We created our own religion in America called black religion. It's not Christian. It's not African. Um, uh, it's a mix, and it's not West Indian. It's a little bit of all of that. It's a mix of African, a mix of Christian, a mix of Islamic, a mix of um, slave religion, and all of it, we've like our chitlins, like our gumbo, got all of that stuff in there. And that's what makes us who we are. And it's, it's the fact that we had to use chitlins to survive that lets you know we're going to survive. If, if our people were willing to adapt to pig guts to survive, because that's what they were given, and they made it work, what you think we're capable of? I told, let me say this, and I want to wrap up after this, Ms. Graham. I was asked to give a black history talk this week to the FBI in San Francisco, and I did. And this is on the 23rd, two days ago, um, right after uh, Crump held the press conference with the brother and the daughters of Malcolm, 
around the confession of the uh, the NYPD officer who said the FBI NYPD uh, conspired to kill Malcolm. I didn't see what the big deal was. It just seemed to be more confirmation. It was nothing that we didn't already know. So I don't know why. You know, I think Crump. I don't like Crump. I think Crump was an opportunist. I think Crump did that on Malcolm's uh, the anniversary of Malcolm's death, and you know he could have done it three weeks before. But just to, to, to you know, even if you look at the letterhead, Miss Graham, where the presser went out, uh, Crump says the the, the, the nationally renowned um, attorney. Johnny Cochran would never say something stupid like that. But he said the nationally renowned attorney, Benjamin Crump, is holding a presser, and it was all staged. That's why I didn't respect it. I got, my book is on Malcolm X. Um, I, I, I sat down alone with Atala Shabazz on a public event, at a public event one-on-one with me and her in front of an audience of 700 people, me and Atala Shabazz, just me and her, when, when Malcolm X, the movie, came out in L.A. when I was down there. Just me and Atala Shabazz on a one-on-one. I was the interviewer of Atala Shabazz. Um, so I don't even respect what they did because I don't, I don't see anything ex- new, except it just sort of confirms what we already knew. But when you, I think, appreciate that um, – that you know that I had to give a talk to the FBI this week, with that as the news on the anniversary of Malcolm's death. Birth, death. And then two FBI agents were killed last week, uh, serving up a warrant to a, uh, to a child a child of victimizer. And then they um, also had uh, the movie um, Judas and and um, and the Messiah that's out, talking about FBI conspiracy and killing Fred Hampton. So I had, and and then after all these verdicts, there were if you notice there were like four different rulings by four different grand juries around America in Aurora, Aurora Oakland, and up in uh, with the brother um, who they put who was naked and they put the plastic bag over his head and um, and, the, and the Elijah McClain case. We had about four four ju- grand juries yesterday, Miss Graham, come down and say no true verdict on all the cops that shot four different people or, or killed them other, other without shooting them. That all happened in, in the last couple of days. So I had to get up and talk to the FBI. And I, I, I was struggling with the sleeping. Like, what, what could I possibly say? Now, fortunately, the theme was based on the Carter G. Woodson theme. Every Black History Month, Black History is given a theme by Carter G. Woodson's organization, Asala. You know, that's, that's where black history comes from. That's where, and, and it's been kept alive by his organization. Beautiful black scholars, beautiful non-black scholars keep this alive. Every year there's a new theme. So this year's theme was a black family. So I'm thinking, what does the F- at first I didn't realize what the theme was, where it came from. So I'm confused, like, what does the FBI, how dare they? It's just like, are they trying to taunt me? Like, y'all asking me to talk to y'all about the black family after what y'all have done to the black family? Are you kidding me? So I told them that as soon as I got up. I said, the challenge of my day is to, to talk to y'all about the black family right after this revelation about Malcolm, about the role of the FBI in it, and after two of your brothers and sisters have been killed, and also after these verdicts, and also after this movie. I said, that's my task, right? And, they, you know, and I told them, I said, now put yourself in my shoes. How would you like to be me right now, right? So I think they, they accepted that. But, Ms. Graham, I went over, and I talk just like I'm talking now to this audience as I, I talk to them because I don't change up who I am. I don't, I don't become white in white circles. And, and, and a sister named Quinesha recruited me, so I knew I was in good shape. From the FBI, her name was Quinesha, Ms. Graham, Quinesha. So you know sister girl is trying to get some diversity, equity, and inclusion up in there, trying to get me up in there. So I appreciated what she was doing, right? The spook who sat by the door, right, who stood by the door, Greeley, Greeley. And, and so through my speech, at the end of it, Ms. Graham, I said this. I said black people broke the back of slavery. They broke the back of peonage. They broke the back of convict leasing. They broke the back of Jim Crow. 
I said, and recently they said defund the police. I said, it may take 70 years from now, but black people have put the crosshairs on racist policing in America, and black people are going to kill racist policing in America. And it's already dying, a lot of it. You know, a lot of things are happening just because we moved. In Alabama last week, Alabama took down George Wallace's name off the building, Ms. Graham, and they didn't even make a big deal out of it. Nobody even knows it. That's just our culture. That's the power of our culture. That's, that's a reaction to Bree Walker four years ago. I mean, Bree Newsom four or five years ago up on that flag in South Carolina. They're still taking stuff down because one of our daughters got up on the, on the pole and said, no more of this. And now they reported this week about 170 monuments have been taken down around America. Right? And, and that's our culture. That's a spiritual culture. So anybody who comes from another country, you, you black, you know, non-black American, you're not, born, you know, you're not from the, black, the U.S. black American group, be clear but you might look down on us because you don't understand. And, and, and trust me, I've been to your countries. I know that you ain't living nearly as good back home as you are here, or at least the poor people back home ain't living like they are here. So you can't come here looking down on black people. We are the reason why you even can get come here. We're the reason why Arabs can come here. We're the reasons why Indians from India can come here. We're the reasons why anybody from the you know who is not Western European from 1965 on. Black, the black movement opened up the political will with Ted Kennedy to create the 1965 Origins and Naturalization Act, which allowed Muslims and Arabs from around the world to finally come to America. They couldn't come as groups or through quotas prior to the 1960s. So every time you see an Arab in a store, he owes you and your ancestors a, a, a debt of gratitude because no Arab, no Indian... Most non-white groups in America would not be nearly as advanced as they were if it was not for the vanguard role of black people's struggles. And it's because of our spiritual culture that Du Bois understood at moment one of its existence. When he looks into our future in the 20th century in 1903, he says in the first chapter of our spiritual strivings, he says it's of our spiritual strivings, our spiritual strivings. And Du Bois was an atheist, people. So Du Bois ain't talking about church, but church is a part of what Du Bois is talking about. He ain't talking about Islam, but Islam will be a part of what he's talking about. What he's talking about is so much deeper than any component part. It's bigger than King. It's bigger than Kamala. It's bigger than Obama. It's bigger than Jesse. It's bigger than Harriet. It's bigger than Fred Douglas. It's bigger than anything except the collective determination of a people to be free. That's us. And we are going to be free. Every generation is going to keep knocking it down and knocking it down. But I think we just knocked it down in a major way recently, which is why they're lurching for their racist in their racist desperation. But God is on our side. And right is on our side. And democracy is on our side. And that's why I know America is going to be better for our grandchildren and our children's children's children um, going forward and the hopelessness you see is not being expressed by black people. We've been dealing with scarcity. We've been dealing with poverty. We've been dealing with houselessness. We've been dealing with all of the issues that they now say is a crisis when they got $100 in their pocket to every $1 we got in ours right now. And the state is still on their side. The state is still giving them reparations. Being white in America is reparations. And that's why black people need 400 years of reparations to compensate for all the damage that, that has been done while the state artificially gave white people a sense of superiority, which was nothing but state-guaranteed backing economically, legally, uh, penally, police-wise, 
banking-wise, living-wise, education-wise, the American state made the white group artificially superior to everybody else. And now it can no longer do it, and that's why they're tearing it down, if you want to understand what you just saw in January. You are seeing a spiritual crisis of the white group in America. And I think I'm going to stop right there, Ms. Graham, uh, because I've uh, shared a lot of information, and I think I've covered practically all of the points that, that I wanted to, to cover. Um, remind your, young, your children, mother, tell your children they're beautiful. Tell your children, even if you don't understand your family history all the way, just, just, just don't give up. Don't stop trying to expose them. I told you all last week I was headed for a life of prison. When I was 15 years old, I had no father. I was in the projects. Everybody was doing dirt. We were all doing dirt. We were all doing crime. One night, four of my friends went to a Long Island Railroad train. We went with these long knives, and we had every intention of committing a crime. Thank God for me, nobody got off the train that night. We went home. I never thought about it again. I don't know where the knives went, and that was the end of it for me. We never went back. I never went back. I was about 15 years old, and I was just following a group of, of my best friends. We were just walking in the cold of New York. I don't know why, but we just did it. We walked a long distance to, to the train station to go do this crime. And, Ms. Graham, if I have ever believed in God, that was the moment. I, that still is the moment I believe in God right there in my life. That's where God showed up. Because if somebody had gotten off that train, You would be talking to me through a phone and in a prison and not as a professor in the way you know me. That's how close it was for me. I was borderline. I was on the precipice of going one way or the other. But some black woman named Edith Giles Cooper, who now has dementia, and she's in D.C. now, and she's a Delta Sigma Theta, she gave me Vincent Harding's There Is a River, and that book took me out the ignorance I was in, and it put me on this path. And what do you hear me talking about now, 40 years later? The depths of our deep spiritual culture. It, in some ways, it's autobiographical for me because in some ways, it just sort of tells me, and I'm sorry, I've, I've been emotional on your show multiple times, and I'm sorry, I'm not normally like that, but when I, when I get to thinking about certain things, you know, that we've been through and what has sustained us, it just it just cuts my heart. And... um and I, and I, you know, I think about where I could have gone, but because a black woman gave me a book called There Is a River written by somebody that was a friend and a student of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, because Vincent Martin wrote that book and I read it at 16, 17 years old, my whole life changed. And here I am now in my 50s. And what is my conversation tonight? All I've talked about is that deep river, that deep culture, that Du Bois and Vince Harding and Toni Morrison and James Baldwin have mapped out for us as a people to understand is our, is our sustainability. And it's our nuclear weapon against their racism. It's the thing we have. They can call you in. All you got to do is start dancing, and it'll confuse them. They, let, let, let a white person call you an in and just start dancing or start singing Amazing Grace or, or just, just start singing I Have a Dream. You know, just do anything from our popular culture and watch it confuse them. 
White people got put out of minstrel. When they started blackening up and got populist, got Joplin, and these white people became famous on vaudeville, they became famous in Broadway, they became nationally famous. Black people ended um, a white, a blackface minstrel simply by putting on blackface. I told you that multiple times on this show. Black people said, okay, white people, we're about to end this silliness, and we killed it. And there's no more minstrel in America. They had to take off the paint, and they, and they started the Grand Ole Opry in, in, um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and vaudeville. That's where that stuff comes from. It was minstrel without the mask. Why did, they, why did they take off the mask? Because we took it off, and that's the power of our culture. And so when I talk about what, um, you know, my deep feeling for um, the, 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 the reservoir and, and how a book that a black woman gave me at 16, 15, 16 years old took me off of a path that was one certain for destruction. I'm, I'm the hope, mama, that you want for your children, and I'm telling you don't give up. I'm telling you give your child a book. Give them something to help them understand that they belong to something deeper than themselves, something bigger. And you'll get a different at some point. You may not see it right away, and unfortunately it may not be in your lifetime. But I think there was um, something that said that, you know, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. You plant, Mama, and somebody like me might come along and water, or Miss Graham comes along and we water. And her programming here, talking about health and 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 community, and not just negative stuff, but life, life, speaking life into our community through programming, speaking not just crime and guns and urban violence, but life to our young people. Um. This is what we need, and and um and our kids act like they don't belong to it, but they belong to it. Even when they're doing a trap and doing all their little deviant stuff, they know the power of the culture, and they know exactly the power of it. Um and and what we have to do, what Carl, what 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 Cruz said, we have to learn to do is we need to own our culture. Too often, y'all know who who else has owned our culture, and other people have owned our cultures, our musical cultures. And this is why James Brown, this is why Prince and Ray Charles and Master P, people who got their masters. You know, Prince said he won't talk to you if you don't have your masters. We need more black folk, you know, who are actually producers and owners and makers of music and owners of our talents and of our, um, our you know, culture. We should be living, we should be making profit off our culture, not others. And that's, what, that's the part we got to get right. That's what we need our economists. That's what we need our music industry people to come together and help us figure out how can we get control over our music like Chinese people have control over laundry. We, we had control over weed, but they had it illegal. Now that we done lost control over weed now that they made it legal, unfortunately. How can we get control over our music? That's what we got to figure out and uh, other uh, art form expressions. I love you, Ms. Graham. I love our common ground. I can't express to you, you might think I've done you a favor, but I cannot explain to you how helpful this is to me as a brother who wants to be useful to the black community. With whatever little bit I got, whatever time I got left, I want to be useful. I want to, I want to help us. I'm not trying to be, you know, some elite top-down. I'm trying to honor my mother who comes from the bottom up. I started all of this. When crack hit my projects on Long Island, I joined about 10 black mothers from the projects. We created an organization called the United Parents Against Drug Abuse, and we called it UPADA, and it's never been written about, and 
and nobody's ever heard of it since then except what I'm saying right now. We created an organization, and I'm telling you, if you never heard it from me, how many other tens of thousands of efforts were there like this that are anonymous now? But what we did, Ms. Graham, we met every Saturday in the hot summers of New York and marched on our own neighborhood, and we said, hey, hey, ho, ho, crack dealing has got to go. We would just say anything, you know, and it was our mothers from our neighborhood. That's where I got started. I did not get started as some academic head, some intellectual. That's why I ain't famous as a celebrity, because my orientation is the corner of the projects where I come from, in Long Island. Um, and so, on Long Island, should I say, you don't say in, you say on, on Long Island. And, and so I'm trying to honor my mother and honor my grandfather and honor the people that I come from who were nothing but beautiful people. And they had a deep, beautiful culture. And when I realized, Ms. Graham, a few years back, that the reason why I didn't take that path to crime, when I didn't follow that life, I understood that the roots of my grandfather, who I remember until I was five when he, di when he died, I remember him. And when, if you look at my book, you'll see I dedicate my book to my grandfather. And my book says, and it'll be opening, if you have it, open it. It says to Louis Perrette, I missed you. I've missed you every day of my life. That's what I said in a dedication to my grandfather. Not my father, because I never had a father. I don't know who my father was. I've never, I don't know who he was. But I had a grandfather, and he named me James, Miss Graham. He named me after his own child. His own child died, and he named me after his child that died. And my grandfather um, is the reason why... When I moved, when my mother moved us up into the projects, the projects could not own me and keep me and kill me because the foundation of my life was that first five years I spent with my grandfather from Honeyer Path, South Carolina, near Greenville. And that foundation is what you've been given in these four weeks. You have been given what I was given by my people, and I pray and I hope it has enriched you I hope you don't get so distracted by all the chaos in the world that you don't forget to sing, that you don't forget to listen to your music, that even when you're down, put your music on to put you in the mood and then say thank you. If there's if it's a guitar in it, I don't care if it's rock and roll. We, my son and I were listening to rock and roll today going down the hill. I said to my son, that white man is playing that guitar because of Robert Johnson. I said, Robert Johnson is why that white man is playing that guitar like that. I said to my son, and I pulled out the, 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 the CD of Robert Johnson I had in the car. I said, see this man right here? That's why that white man is playing that guitar right there. Because my son is going to know that his culture is actually far more powerful than the white man has tried to reduce it. And so that when he listens to rock and roll and white folk are talking about, you know, Led Zeppelin or The Who or, or you know, uh, Rolling Stone and The Beatles and how amazing they were or Janis Joplin, it's like, fool, don't you know about Big Mama Thornton that that was her music these people were singing? Don't you know that the, the guitars they were playing came from the likes of, of, of Robert Johnson? That the whole idea of the guitar, you know, electric, comes from the Mississippi and down in the Delta. And that Jimi Hendrix is the middle passage of that reality. He's both the rock and roll transition and also looking back to the blues. Jimi Hendrix is the black past. He's this ancient black past. Jimi Hendrix is an extension of Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and B.B. King. He's their last one of them practically, you know, one of the last one of them. But he's also this important linkage figure for rock and roll amongst white folk. Jimi Hendrix on one side is black blues. On the other side is white rock and roll. But what's in his hand is Robert Wood, Robert Johnson's guitar. 
And that is what I mean, Ms. Graham, when I talk about how beautiful and powerful our culture is. It's the only reason why America's still got anything to be happy about. It's the only reason why anybody can dance and sing. Look at verses. Look at basketball. You know, look at basketball. Look at what basketball has done. Look at what football has done. Look at what our athletes have done on the protest front, but also on the entertainment front, but on our cultural front. Without, without us playing basketball, do you remember how depressed it was? Ms. Graham, it was our culture that announced to America that COVID was here when the NBA shut down that one day. It was black men that made America, got America's attention with COVID, not Trump, not Dr. Fauci. It's when Rudy um, Gobert from Utah was uh, diagnosed with it, the NBA shut down. And then black men in the league said, we will not play because we're not jeopardizing our grandmothers and our mothers and our sisters and our fathers. So please see it. I've tried my best to paint it for you. And if you can't see it, then it's my fault um, for being a, a poor presenter. But I pray that you understand that you are a part of the souls of black folk. And you don't have to be black if you love us. If you hate us, well, then, you know, that's, that's fine. But, but the souls of black folk will thrive. And, and we'll call it Black Lives Matter now. It might be called black people, black people up in 50 years from now. It might be called black people more in 70 years from now. Black people happy 90 years from now. But it's nothing but the souls of black folk. And it's every generation striving for freedom. So I thank you, Ms. Graham, for this opportunity. I thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Um, I'm, I don't like hawking my book and promoting it, but I really would appreciate if people would consider it. You can get it at half price if you go directly to the publisher, Lynn Reiner. Um, uh, you can just look at the book on Amazon, and instead of buying it on Amazon, contact the publisher, and they'll give it to you for like $14, half price. Um, and that way you can read it. And you can read along, and you'll see where I'm coming from. This whole talk, you can get the whole sense of it in the book. From chapter one, the first thing in my book is Jeremiah Wright saying, God damn America. That's how my book opens up, Miss Graham, with Jeremiah Wright in the pulpit saying, God damn America. And my book ends, Miss Graham, with Jeremiah Wright in the pulpit saying, God damn America. And I believe thank that's you for joining us on right our there. common ground. Okay. And so thank you so much for this opportunity to, to be a part of your show and to be a guest on your show and to be a host on your show. And I've had friends from L.A. I've had friends who I didn't know listen to your show. I had, I've had an ex-girlfriend from L.A. said she listened to it. And I was like, whoa! So um, that was quite, quite shocking, uh, Ms. Graham. So you, you put me out there, and that's what I'm saying. You've done me a favor and I, you know, in exposing me to your audience, and I really appreciate it because I know you are not going to expose your people to just anybody. So thank you all so much. I'm going to sign off here, Ms. Graham, and, um, and thank you all to the Our Common Ground audience. May God bless you. Uh, may God's peace be upon you. May your family stay healthy. If you're hurting because you lost your family, we pray for you. Um, and we thank those who are on the front lines, like the preachers, who nobody is giving credit to, who are burying our 100,000 dead. Yes, we're talking about our doctors, and we're talking about you know, our nurses and our medical professionals. We love you, but somebody's burying our black dead. And that's where our preachers are doing it. And there, there, there's a lot of criticism and a lot of embarrassment and a lot of corruption and a lot of ungodly preachers in our, in our community. But, 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 the, but not all of them. And I wouldn't even say most of them. And I think we have to acknowledge that's how our culture is working, even when you can't see it. I'm helping you see. Right now, the, what Du Bois says, the preacher, the frenzy, and, and the music. He said the preacher is the most unique thing that black people have ever created in America. That's what Du Bois says in the souls of black folk. So the idea of Warnock and the idea of 100,000 black people dying and that preachers are the only ones alone with them after they've died, you know, 
keeping families together, comforting families through Zoom and social media. That's happening right now. And, and, and I just want us to acknowledge and recognize this. But for the living, for those of you who are young, those of you who are on the front lines, be empowered by this talk. Be empowered by this series of, of lessons that have talked about you know, scholarship and movement strategies and movement history go. and movement stages and movement leaders that have made our movement so effective that we recently saved democracy in America again, and this time we're going to kill racist policing, and I told the FBI that, so don't make me a liar. Help me be right in telling the FBI to its face that we're going to kill racist policing. And I told them this finally, that if they want to be on the right side of that history, that's fine. But we are now going after racist policing, and, um, and they've been notified. And so I don't know if they're going to mess with me. I doubt they will because I ain't got nothing to mess with. But I'm letting you know that happened. And, and, and like Malcolm, I kept my word, and I did not sell out. I was scared, but I said what I thought I had to say because I didn't want to be a hypocrite and I had to look myself in the mirror, and I just don't like being a hypocrite. It doesn't feel good being a hypocrite. So thank you all. God bless you. God bless our common ground. God bless everyone who can hear. Um, and, 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 um, and I just hope, you know, that you keep your spirits up, um, that you, you realize that um, black people's culture is more powerful than white people's racism, and that's where you can find the peace in these times of racial chaos. Thank you so much, Ms. Graham. I'm going to sign off. Everybody take care. Thank you so much for being with us at Our Common Ground. Join us on Saturday, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you.